Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Today we're going to go over uh, one of the most common but also important issues of, of intestinal permeability um, called endotoxemia or leaky gut. So, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have learned about over the past few years and has really developed a lot of credibility um, is this whole model of intestinal permeability or leaky gut. Leaky gut was a concept that was um, first identified uh, in, in the fields of dental uh, medicine and the link between periodontal infections uh, um, and its impact on the, the rest of the system. And then those patterns of barrier breakdown then led to bacterial release into the system called endotoxemia. And as time has gone on, you know, um, people in natural medicine have always made the connection between bad diets, poor gut health, gut permeability. And it was in recent years where there's been an explosion of research on intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And within that explosion of research, lots of uh, very exciting things have come out in our understanding about how the gut impacts chronic disease and chronic inflammation. And one of the things that we know is that a lot of people have uh, leaky gut. A lot of people have intestinal permeability. And there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, mechanisms that cause intestinal permeability it could be a bad diet, it could be antibiotic use, it could be hormone imbalances, but it's usually a cluster of, of many different things. And um, what I want to do today is really focus on having you understand a few important concepts. What is this phenomena that they call endotoxemia? How does that relate to leaky gut? Why do some people um, have leaky gut and have lots of symptoms and have chronic disease from it? And why do some people not have any symptoms or very little symptoms when they have leaky gut? And then how do you identify it? What kind of lab tests do you do? What kind of applications there are for it and so forth? So let's first talk about uh, leaky gut and then we'll move into all their steps. And by the way, I, I just want to let you guys know that we have a brand new online program put together um, for 2021, uh, first part of 2021, uh, January, we'll be uh, launching our new program called Gut Health, Solving the Puzzle. And I put together a four-week program into teaching you how to figure out what's going on with your gut and understand how to follow clinical strategies that are specific to your own findings. So it's going to include videos and workbooks and questionnaires and recipe guides and all this stuff to really walk you through the process of how to figure out what's going on with your gut and how to manage it just as if you were a patient in my office. Uh, so we'll be doing that early 2021. If you go to Dr. K News, you can sign up to get uh, information when the course is released and we'll obviously offer people who've signed up early promotional items um, if they want to um, take the course. Now, let's get back into leaky gut. So when you when you look at uh, laboratory testing and in a clinical setting, uh, when, you ha when you measure markers for leaky gut, and the markers are it's called zonulin, uh, occluding antibodies, for example, 
you can see that a lot of people actually have intestinal permeability. Like a lot of people have leaky gut. And part of the reason is because there's so many things that cause leaky gut. So if you have a chronic inflammatory diet, if you're under lots of stress, um, even if you don't, if you're sedentary, if you don't exercise, if you're sensitive to things like gluten dairy, you continue to eat them. If you have any kind of autoimmune disease, if you have uncontrolled diabetes, if your blood sugar levels are really high, if your antioxidant reserves have become compromised, and then combination of those things and many other things all really lead to the potential for you to have the gut, which means the intestinal tight junctions start to open up. And when the intestinal tight junctions open up, um, food proteins can cross. And one of the first things people notice is that when they start to get leaky gut, they start to develop reactions to foods that they may have not had before. Now, there's a couple things that you want to understand about that. So some people have leaky gut, but they don't have reactions to food. And part of the reason why is because they digest their food really well. So when you look at why some people develop food sensitivities with leaky gut and why some people don't, part of the reason is because... Um, of how well a person's digestion is. So let me share with you some concepts here. And uh, these are things we'll be going over in our gut health puzzle course too, because I think what happens, there's a lot of information out there, but people don't understand the concepts. So when you don't understand concepts, everything becomes confusing to you. So let me explain a very important concept. If you have two people and they both have intestinal permeability, they both have leaky gut and their gut barriers have opened up, okay? If one person is inefficient in their digestion of food proteins. So maybe they're not making enough hydrochloric acid, they're not making enough pancreatic enzymes, for example, and they can't really break down the proteins that they're consuming. And the starches or even the, maybe they're not producing enough bile, they're not breaking down their fats properly. But if they're not digesting their foods and they both have leaky gut and then another person is properly breaking down their foods, there's a completely different response that happens to them. So even though they both have leaky gut, the person who is able to digest their food proteins, by the time their food gets digested and gets into the small intestine for absorption, um, those food proteins are all broken down into small amino acids and there's going to be no immune reaction against them. Now, if you take the other person that has leaky gut, just like the first one, but the other person can't break down their proteins, they're not digesting their food very well, so they have undigested or, or uncompletely broken down proteins uh, in their system, those larger food particles that normally cannot cross a tight, healthy gut, but now since the gut's open, undigested food particles can now, much, that are much larger in molecular weight, can now cross, and that causes food sensitivity. So one of the important concepts to understand is you could have two people that have leaky gut, but if you have proper digestion of, of protein into um, amino acids, then there's no immune reaction and no development of new foods. On the other hand, if you have leaky gut and you do have issues with uh, breaking down protein or digesting foods, then it's very likely that you'll have undigested food particles that will cross. And those undigested food particles are not individual amino acids. They're clusters of amino acids stuck together called polypeptides. And those polypeptides are going to trigger the immune response. And then the immune system is going to make antibodies and react against those, those peptides. And then the next time you eat those foods uh, that, that have those peptides in them, your body has made antibodies to a region of those proteins, and then you start to react against those food proteins, and now you have the development of food sensitivity. So the, the important concept that I was trying to share with you with that, with, with that scenario is that leaky gut by itself doesn't necessarily lead to every single problem or different problems. Leaky gut has to be uh, 
part of a picture that involves other steps along the way. So with development of food sensitivities, if you have leaky gut, but you're properly breaking down and digesting your food proteins, it's, it's unlikely you'll develop food, develop food sensitivities. However, if you have hypochlorohydrin, you don't digest protein well, you don't digest starch as well, every time you get bloated and distended, then you're going to have some problems if you have leaky gut because now you have undigested food proteins that get through the gut and now you start to develop food sensitivities. So that's the, that's one of the, that's in a concept. That's not just more information. So that's one of the key concepts. So leaky gut with maldigestion and inability to produce digestive enzymes is totally different than leaky gut with proper digestion. Now, the same thing goes with when we talk about today's topic, which is called endotoxemia. So endo, uh, endotoxemia is a condition in which um, bacteria produce endotoxins, and then those endotoxins get into the bloodstream. And like I was saying earlier, endotoxemia um, and the mechanism of how endotoxemia about bacteria can cause chronic disease was first really uh, identified in the dental field with periodontal infections and periodontal disease, gum disease. What they found out was that the bacteria that is involved with various types of periodontal diseases and diseases of the gums um, has led to chronic inflammation in the body and to even cardiovascular risk. This is why many, the American Dental Association really, you know, really promotes good gum and dental hygiene to prevent risk factors like cardiovascular disease. Um, there's an abundance of research that shows that. So in that scenario, what happens is the bacteria that's found in the gums from poor dental health can then get into circulation and then cause inflammation throughout the body. So that's endotoxemia. Well, the same thing can happen in the gut. And what happens is that bacteria that's in the gut, especially uh, adverse bacteria, when a person has dysbiosis, they can have bacteria release um, endotoxins. So, so bacteria will always have its own output. So bacteria produces what are called postbiotics. And some postbiotics help the body, and some postbiotics harm the body. Postbiotics that actually harm the body are called endotoxins. Endo being they're produced within the body, toxin. In this case, bacteria is producing these endotoxins within the body. Now, endotoxemia means these endotoxins not get into circulation. So when you look at a gut membrane, we all have bacteria there. And in certain states, we have a condition that's called dysbiosis. And dysbiosis means we have more bad bacteria than good bacteria. And we know that diet and lifestyle can actually change the ratios of what we call beneficial or, or, or pathogenic bacteria. So we know diets that are really high in uh, sugar, diets that are really high in fats, processed foods, diets that are very low in fiber and low in antioxidants start to shift people into dysbiosis. So, you know, even just the basic standard American diet where people are eating fast food every day, eating very little vegetables, um, that will actually shift people into a pattern of dysbiosis. So when you have dysbiosis, now you have these uh, larger populations of these adverse unhealthy bacteria. And there's a whole bunch of different species of them. There's no point to get into all those names. But those adverse bacteria then produce their own compounds. And one of the compounds that they produce are lipopolysaccharides, which are sugar protein cup substances, and they're called endotoxins. Now, if a person has um, healthy intestinal tight junctions, it's not a problem uh, for the most part. They may, they may not have the best digestive function and the best digestive health. They may have some issues with the dysbiosis itself, but it's not gonna cause significant 
inflammatory responses throughout the body. Now, everything changes if they have leaky gut. If they have leaky gut, then those endotoxins that are normally found just in the gut microenvironment can then get into circulation. And then when these dysbiotic bacteria produce these lipopolysaccharides, which are endotoxins, and they get into systemic circulation, that is now called systemic endotoxemia. And it's the worst scenario of leaky gut. So if you have two people, once again, a different scenario, both people have leaky gut. One person has leaky gut, but they don't have dysbiosis. Their diet's pretty healthy. They're eating good foods. They don't have this, they're eating lots of fiber. They're eating lots of um, plants. They're eating lots of superfoods like uh, broccoli and uh, acai and blueberries. And they have a very rich, colorful diet of lots of different healthy fruits and vegetables. And um, they have leaky gut. Well, in those scenarios, they don't have dysbiosis. They have lots of healthy bacteria. So even though their tight junctions are opened up, they have leaky gut, they're not noticing a lot of symptoms from it. Now, you take another person that has, let's say, the same degree of leaky gut, the same degree of intestinal permeability, but in this scenario, um, their dysbiosis, because of their diet being poor, produces these lipopolysaccharides that then get into circulation, and now you get a whole host of problems. So this is the worst scenario of leaky gut. This is when you have intestinal permeability with endotoxemia. And when you have uh, this endotoxin, and the reference to the name of the endotoxin, is there's, it's just, they just use the general term lipopolysaccharide. There's different variations of lipopolysaccharides. But these gram-negative lipopolysaccharides that come from dysbiotic pathogenic bacteria, they have to have, they have systemic effects throughout the entire body. So these lipopolysaccharides then get into the bloodstream and they bind to something called toll-like receptors. And toll-like receptors are just these receptors that are found all throughout your body. And specifically, it's toll-like receptor 4. And they bind to toll-like receptor 4. And this could be in your gut, it could be in your lungs, it could be in your brain, it could be um, in your in your joints. I mean, it goes, all, all the different uh, cells in your body have cell membranes and they all have these toll-like receptors. And these lipopolysaccharides bind to the TLR4 branch and when they bind to them, this then turns on a inflammatory response within the cell. And it specifically turns on a pathway called NF-kappa-B. Uh, and NF-kappa-B pathway is a very pro-inflammatory pathway. So what they find is that for people that have leaky gut, but specifically with people that have leaky gut and endotoxemia, their leaky gut causes massive inflammation throughout their body. And this will turn on brain inflammation, this will further perpetuate gut inflammation, this will turn on joint inflammation, this will turn on basically to add fuel to the fire wherever there's a fire, right? So if someone has an uh, injured knee, their knee's going to really flare up because those cells are not being, those injured cells are not being turned on and they already have some degree of inflammatory activity anyways. If um, they've had a brain injury and there's some inflammation in the brain that's remnant from the brain injury, uh, those LPS is going to really turn on those injured cells. They can have much greater, greater effects from that, for example. So this is the reason why some people that have leaky gut don't even know have any symptoms and other people that have leaky gut completely fall apart. So it's not just the leaky gut. It has to do with leaky gut and other factors. So one of them is digestive enzymes for like food sensitivities, 
for the pathway of causing chronic inflammation, really uh, turning on debilitating autoimmune disease. Um, you're really worried about not just leaky gut, but you're worried about leaky gut in combination with dysbiosis, where you have this pathogenic bacteria now start to promote these lipopolysaccharides that get into circulation. Now, um, in a clinical setting, we can measure them. So like uh, one of the most effective tests to use for this is a panel through Cyrex Labs, and uh, it's called Cyrex Rate 2, and it measures if a person has leaky gut. So they measure proteins called occluded zonulin, uh, and they measure actual gram-negative lipopolysaccharides. And if the lipopolysaccharide levels are high in blood, then that person not only has leaky gut, but they have leaky gut with endotoxemia. And as, as a clinician, when, when you see that, everything changes. Now you know that their leaky gut is going to cause significant and severe inflammation throughout their body, and they're at risk for many conditions. Now, this model of endotoxemia and leaky gut is well-studied, well-published in the immunology literature. I'm not sure if it's you know transferred into the way a general general practitioner will practice um, in conventional healthcare, but in the field of immunology, the study of endotoxemia and uh, the study of endotoxemia primarily has a large amount of research uh, at this current state. So we know it's a well-established own mechanism. Now, let me explain what this endotoxemia does to people and how they have, what kind of symptoms they present with, okay? So once someone starts to develop these endotoxemia patterns were, number one, they had dysbiosis to begin with, they had much more adverse pathogenic bacterial growth. Those dysbiotic bacteria are now producing these endotoxins. Those endotoxins are now getting into the bloodstream because the person has leaky gut, their tight junctions have opened up. Once that LPS gets into the system, one of the most common areas where people will have some issues will be their brain. So lipopolysaccharides can cross the blood-brain barrier and then activate cells in the brain called microglia. And when microglial cells get activated, that creates brain inflammation. So there's been a, a large amount of research now published showing that endotoxemia will do several things to the brain. One of the major ones right now is several publications that shows that it causes major depressive disorder. So many people that end up with leaky gut and have endotoxemia, not just leaky gut, but leaky gut with endotoxemia, may suffer from chronic unresponsive uh, depression. So major depressive disorders unresponsive to any antidepressants has been identified as uh, potentially being related to endotoxemia. Several papers on this now. So in one of these studies, they actually treated these people for leaky gut, and, and for a large percentage of the population, a statistically significant percentage of the study population, they actually found that for the first time, their major depressive disorder went away. So we know that inflammation can cause, um, inflammation in the brain can cause major depression. And most of the research in the past decade has really shifted away from trying to find a neurotransmitter imbalance as a cause of major depression to just general inflammation in the brain causing major major depression. So we know that um, some of the expressions of endotoxemia is major depressive disorder. We also know that there's been some publications that have now investigated that further since brain inflammation is linked to Alzheimer's disease and, and uh, other neurodegenerative diseases, other cognitive declines, um, 
they, they have now published many studies linking endotoxemia to mechanisms that promote um, conditions like dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So we know that this endotoxemia is much, much more serious than just leaky gut. And when you see those LPS levels high in the blood, that it's a whole different scenario. And this may be a reason why some people have major depressive disorder. And this is also why some people that have had chronic depression for their whole life start working with a functional medicine practitioner and they start to change their diet and start to improve their gut health. And all of a sudden their depression starts to dramatically change. So those that's one of the main mechanisms of endotoxemia. Another main mechanism of endotoxemia is its connection with blood sugar control. And there's, there's a lot of research now in the, the world of diabetes where they're finding that when there's endotoxemia, when lipopolysaccharides um, get into the bloodstream, they have been found to disrupt insulin receptor signaling. So insulin receptors are, are important for us because they help transport glucose um, um, into our cells so we can produce energy. So every time we eat protein, fats, or carbs, it eventually gets converted to glucose, and we've got to carry that glucose into our cells. So what they have found in many studies now is that endotoxemia leads to these lipopolysaccharides that disrupt and alter insulin receptor signaling, thereby promoting further insulin resistance and even promotion of diabetes. So they know that when diabetics have endotoxemia, it's much harder to control their medication and their insulin intake. They know that when um, patients that don't have diabetes start to have endotoxemia, they, they start to lean towards insulin resistance. They start to have their insulin signaling pathways inefficient. So that'll cause them to gain weight easily. That'll cause them to get fatigue. That'll cause them to really crash after, eat, after they eat meals, especially large carbohydrate meals. And this is because of, um, one, of the, one of the variables of this is because of the um, endotoxemia. Now, obviously, these, this, this is one variable. Now, if you have like a person who already overeats and already doesn't exercise and then again, endotoxemia, it's going to really make it more expressed than someone who just, you know, doesn't have those factors. But for the same point, you could have someone who's always exercised, who's always ate well, and all of a sudden they're starting to get insulin resistance issues. Part of that may be because of factors not really just to their diet, but because of endotoxemia. The other key thing that happens with endotoxemia, which is especially concerning, is for those people that already have an autoimmune disease. So lipopolysaccharides, once they get into the bloodstream and turn on those toll-like receptors, are going to amplify any pre-existing autoimmune disease. So if they have celiac disease, it's going to get worse. If they have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, it's gonna get worse. If they have multiple sclerosis, it has a potential to make it worse. So we know that the activation of toll-like receptors that turns on NF-kappa B is going to turn on autoimmunity. The other thing that we know is that studies have shown that endotoxemia is directly linked to uh, obesity and, and not just from the insulin signaling pathway disruption, but lipopolysaccharides will actually activate fat cells. Fat cells are called adipocytes, and lipopolysaccharides bind to receptors on fat cells, adipocytes, and these adipocytes then create inflammation, and they also start to enlarge and swell. So there's been some direct findings that um, inflammation and, inf and inflammation promoted by endotoxemia can increase inflammation and slow down fat breakdown and enhance fat enlargement, fat swelling. So we have issues with LPS on body composition. We also know that these lipopolysaccharide compounds um, from endotoxemia get into the liver 
and they activate immune cells in the liver called Cooper cells. And that creates an inflammatory reaction in the liver, upregulates the immune response in the liver. So the person becomes much more reactive to various chemicals and compounds that the liver has to metabolize and different immune triggers that way. So as you can see, there's a whole host of various mechanisms that, that have all been published now uh, in the peer-reviewed literature that are involved with this LPS endotoxemia. Now, um, there is a list of conditions that have now been directly linked to LPS, um, or not say directly, have, have a variant of their pathophysiology promoted by this endotoxemia, chronic disease at this point, atherosclerosis, uh, liver inflammation, uh, fatty liver development, um, type 2 diabetes, obesity, kidney uh, kidney infection has been shown to be made much made worse. All infections can be triggered and made much worse with uh, endotoxemia, uh, including respiratory infections, uh, links to allergy and asthma in the literature, some links now in studies with prostate cancer. So we know that it, it really does perpetuate and can be a variable in adding fire, uh, adding fuel to the fire of any chronic inflammatory disease. So um, the purpose of this talk today was to kind of sh share with you, like not all leaky gut's the same. You can have many, be many different patients with leaky gut, and some will have food sensitivities because they can't maldigest, and the leaky gut in combination with undigested particles will cause food sensitivities. Some patients with leaky gut will have significant inflammation throughout their body and have their autoimmunity made dramatically worse, or have a chronic inflammatory condition triggered by it, or have massive major depression caused by their leaky gut. And the key variable that's been found to be a factor there is whether they have dysbiosis promoting LPS. And again, those can be measured in the blood. So that's the whole endotoxemia response. So then, you know, that's there. And then the question is, well, like, how do you fix it? What do you do? And this is uh, where, um, you know, it's, there's a personalized approach to it. There's lots of different factors. First, first question you have to clinically ask is, why do you have the gut? And the second question is, why do you have dysbiosis? Uh, so there are people that eat a healthy diet and they still have dysbiosis because there's, there's other mechanisms impacting their gut. So for example, you could have a healthy diet, but you could be hypothyroid and hypothyroidism has an impact on the gut microflora and you may not even know you're hypothyroid. And that may make you more prone to having um, dysbiosis, even though your diet is, is somewhat healthy. Um, thyroid hormones also are responsible for preserving your tight junctions. You need thyroid hormones to create a anabolic state so your gut regenerates and heals. So if someone's hypothyroid, they may have dysbiosis, meaning they have endotoxemia as part of it, especially if their diet's bad. So, uh, you know, there's a, you know, this is also part of the reason why we have to create a gut health program, which, like I told you earlier, gut health solving the puzzle that we're going to be launching in January. We're going to teach you all the steps, all the different mechanisms of leaky gut and show you how to find it so then you can factor those out. But the most common cause of leaky gut is just an inflammatory diet. Okay. Now, the second part of it is, so, so one part of managing endotoxemia is you got to find out why your cause, why you have leaky gut. The second part of it is um, you got to figure out why you have dysbiosis. Now, the most common cause of having dysbiosis is a bad diet, but it doesn't always have to be a bad diet. You could have dysbiosis because you have a gallbladder issue and you're not releasing bile salts. And if you don't release bile salts, you have altered uh, gut metabolism taking place. Bile salts activate um, 
critical FXR receptors that help modulate and balance out your microbiome. So those, those are the factors there. Now, let me tell you what's not going to fix leaky gut endotoxemia. Taking a probiotic and taking some glutamine to fix leaky gut is not going to fix leaky gut endotoxemia. And the reason I'm saying this because this is the stuff that's all over the internet. The simple solution for conditions that are not simple. Um, you know, when you when you read what's out there, it's like, oh, leaky gut is linked to all these health problems, and this is the protocol you take. You take all these five supplements all together, and magic is supposed to happen. That is not real. That's not how, this, how these things work. So when you look at, for example, someone who's got autoimmunity or has a chronic inflammatory condition, there's going to be some investigative work that needs to take place to figure out why they have leaky gut, and then second, why they have dysbiosis, and then you would measure that. And then at some point, once you try to identify those, then you can actually then use things like probiotics and glutamine and other nutraceuticals to help heal the gut. But if those underlying mechanisms are not treated, a probiotic by itself or taking nutraceuticals to support the gut is not going to work. This is why a lot of people are so frustrated when they try all these things in the internet because they don't understand the concepts. So um, hopefully... um, I was able to give you some insight into what endotoxemia is, why some people react differently with, with leaky gut versus other people. And uh, I think we've got a bunch of questions. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, we see people from all over the world. It's really amazing. And I have my uh, wonderful wife, Dr. Andrew Reyes here. Help me. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so um, really quickly, you said a lot of things that are people didn't understand all the way because there would be like, New, newer concepts or words that sound similar to other words. Yeah. Can you quickly say um, the test you use to test for Endotoxi- endotoxemia? Sure. Yeah. So by the way, you can lots of labs can measure just what are called lipopolysaccharides, gram-negative lipopolysaccharides. And if you, if your lipopolys gram-negative lipopolysaccharides are high on a blood test, that means you have uh, endotoxemia. Now, the lab test that I use, the one I recommend when I teach courses to practitioners, is the one through Cyrex Laboratories, and I have a relationship working with Cyrex um, as an advisor. But they have a really great panel that measures leaky gut markers, including zonulin and um, actomycin, which are proteins for the gut barrier. And if those are elevated, it means that their gut barrier is breaking down. And they also measure lipopolysaccharides because you have to see the big picture. So just you know, just just seeing it's on as leaky gut is not enough. So I can tell you, like if I look at a report and I see markers for leaky gut show up, and they don't have endotoxemia, I'm not as worried about it. If I see that they have leaky gut markers, like including zonulin antibodies elevated, and they have LPS levels and elevated, it becomes a, an immediate clinical priority because that is going to add fuel to the fire everywhere that they already have an existing issue. So it's going to be much, much different. Um, and this is where you would really jump on top of that and try to figure out why they have leaky gut, why they have dysbiosis. It becomes much, much more critical versus someone who doesn't have, someone could have leaky gut and they have no no real food sensitivities and no real um, inflammation from it. They don't have endotoxemia and their leaky gut is not as big of a clinical concern because Maybe it's secondary to something else that's being overlooked. So treating their gut for leaky gut would be a waste of time at that point. Okay, perfect. Um, so the question is, um, is endo- endotoxemia a cause for irritable bowel syndrome, soror- sor- sorry, <coughs> eczema, that kind of stuff, skin conditions, sure. psoriasis? Mm-hmm. So endotoxemia, we didn't talk about this, but lipopolysaccharides also turn on 
the um, dendritic cells on epidermis tissue, which then can lead to any kind of inflammatory skin condition. For some people, if they have predisposition to psoriasis, it'll throw up their psoriasis. For the most common thing is people will get like eczema. Um, some gene types get uh, more rosacea pattern, but it does cause an, it does promote an inflammatory skin condition. So that's that's for sure there. Now, lipopolysaccharides that then turn on an inflammatory response. First of all, um, if you have an inflammatory bowel disease, you're at more risk for having leaky gut. And if you have an inflammatory bowel disease with dysbiosis, you have a greater risk for having endotoxemia. Um, so that's that's that connection there. But the endotoxemia may add fuel to the fire of an inflammatory bowel disease, but the inflammatory bowel disease is its own unique condition itself that may or may not lead to leaky gut or endotoxemia. So I think I answered that. Yeah, people just asking again. So sure. Okay. Um, so then Gabushka is asking, then how do you heal from endotoxemia? How do you heal from endotoxemia? Yeah. You figure out what's causing leaky gut, which, you know, we have to, it's beyond what I, it's, it's, its own, it's its own conversation. Very simple thing you can do is make sure your diet's healthy, but sometimes diets are healthy and you got to dig deeper. And the second part of it again is, uh, why do they have dysbiosis? So leaky gut and dysbiosis are two independent, uh, mechanisms that cause them, but they have overlap. So that's how you 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 have to then then go after it. Now, for a lot of people, listen, just like getting off inflammatory foods, getting off processed foods, uh, eating a healthy diet, getting some physical movement, and exercise actually has a major impact on the microbiome. Making sure they don't have any underlying metabolic or chronic conditions, um, getting rid of foods that they react to that are sensitive to, will do will will we'll fix many of these uh, leaky gut endotoxemia patterns. But for some people, it's much more complicated. And, and this is why you need a step-by-step approach. So, and 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 what, and what I've realized over the years and what's kind of f- focusing our direction in the next few years is that not everyone can find a good healthcare professional. And just because that they do nutrition doesn't mean they're good at it. Just because they do functional medicine doesn't mean they're good at it. So we're at the point where, where we have to get we have to teach concepts and the thought process to the public. And the first place we're starting with this early next year is our gut program, Gut Health Solving the Puzzle. So if you go to Dr. K News, you can sign up to get information about it and it'll launch early next year. But in that course, I can give you more because I can I can have hours and hours of time to give you step-by-step approach and give you questionnaires. It's just impossible to do in a Facebook live setting. But at, but at least you understand some of the key concepts. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really good. People just get frustrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, okay, so Vanessa's asking, how big a role can bone broth bone broth play in helping to heal our gut? And can a small amount of L-glutamine uh, daily help heal a gut? Yes. So listen, bone broth is great. Bone broth has lots of healthy glutamine and factors that really help the gut intestines heal. And we're at the point where everyone that's out there has to make some effort to improve their gut health, <laughs> okay? So everyone has to really put some effort into improving their gut health. So if you're drinking a bone broth every day or taking a glutamine, that's great. Um, but if you have something that's that's causing dysbiosis, um, I mean, like if you still eat fast food and then have some bone broth, that's okay, but it's not gonna, if you're in a intestinal permeability and toxemia, it's not gonna turn that around. It may have some degree of benefit that's small. Uh, if you remove the causes of the leaky gut and remove the cause of, of the dysbiosis, 
you can really heal the gut really quickly with things like bone broth and the toxin with bone broth and um you know, things like glutamine. And this is also why like people are so frustrated. They go on forums and go, some some person will say, Oh, I did this bone broth diet for two weeks and did this, I feel great, I feel like I'm like I'm a new person. Because they're at the point where all they really need to do is heal their lining. Versus someone who still has underlying mechanisms causing their tight junction breakdown and still has endotoxemia and they do the bone broth and have no effect and they're like, I don't understand, what did you do different? And you know, people immediately blame the bone broth or the supplement. But they neglect to look at what is the underlying mechanism that's causing them to have it, and that's the key issue. So those things are great, uh, but they're going to have different effects with people. And if you're at the point where it's just helping you heal, then it's a good idea. And if you have a mechanism you still can't figure out why you have leaky gut and you have ongoing issues with it, it's always a good idea to continue to take things like bone broth and L-glutamine to be supportive. But you have to know that it's not going to be the only exclusive treatment that's going to make uh, it. It's not going to resolve the issue by itself. Okay. Um, Lauren is asking, where does detox fit into healing endotoxemia? Well, it's, you know, detox, and by detox, I mean, I'm making reference to, uh, I'm assuming you're making reference to the liver's job of getting rid of chemicals, which is done through like a phase one, phase two pathway. So um, detoxification, uh, as most people look at it, is looking at how environmental chemicals have to be cleared out of our body before they lead to their own inflammatory responses, oxidative stress responses, toxicological adverse effects. And that's that's great. Endotoxemia is different. The toxin is not happening from the entire external environment. It's happening from the internal environment. That the person's diet and lifestyle has promoted a growth of unhealthy bacteria, which is now producing their own toxins. And then those, those toxins... Um, um, these lipopolysaccharides, they don't, first of all, they don't really depend upon phase one, phase two liver for clearance. They're lipopolysaccharides. Lipopolysaccharides break down very quickly. So once they have their effect, they break down and they don't last that long. So your liver's ability to have phase one, phase two is not going to make much of a difference on lipopolysaccharides. The key thing isn't how they clear out. The key thing is that they need to stop being produced. So um, detox seems to be not the key factor with this because lipopolysaccharides are not dependent upon liver phase one, phase two pathways. They get produced, they bind to receptors, and they break apart, and then you get rid of them. So it's this ongoing production that's really more of the issue with it. So I, I hope I answered that question. Okay, Hasa is asking, can't L-glutamine, L-glutamine, sorry, backfire in the presence of a dysbiosis? You know, there's some, uh, there's some people who to- can't tolerate different supplements, but it's not necessarily backfiring, and there's all this. I don't know what they call it, internet conspiracy, that L-glutamine converts to glutamate and glutamate is toxic and some people have that. That's ridiculous. That's not how the body works. The conversion of L-glutamine and glutamine doesn't happen just because you take, take it. That's that's crazy talk. Um, I mean, there's a lot of nutrition crazy talk out on the internet. But there is, there is, uh, <laughs> I think it's mellow out. Sometimes they get upset about it too much. Uh, but anyways, um, the, the, the reality is that some people just can't take various supplements, and we don't know why. And some people can't tolerate L-glutamine from one, from one manufacturer, and they can't from another. Maybe how it's processed, maybe other um, uh, substrate, substances in the, in the product that, that we're using in the plant that, that, that are now contaminating the product, we don't know. But for most, most people, they can, L-glutamine by itself is, is, is usually very tolerable. And bone broth is also another excellent way to get yourself some natural forms of L-glutamine and healing growth factors if uh, you can't take the supplement. 
People are saying, we love conspiracy. <laughs> so Let's do a talk, just on conspiracy. No. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Okay. Um, let's see. Can is candida found on a blood test? Is is candida found on a blood test and endotoxin? Yeah, so so candida, you know that's another that's another mechanism that falls along the same the same mechanism. Instead of having um gram-negative bacteria that releases lipopolysaccharides, some people can have an healthy gut and really promote greater growth of candida species. Now remember, candida is part of normal gut, but if you can have too much of it, and candida in the in the gut itself doesn't, you know, it's not it's not the best thing, but it's it's not as bad as if someone has leaky gut. So you can measure, for example, um, do a bacteriology stool test with a patient and get a get a measurement of a mycology assessment to see if they have what levels of candida they have in their stool sample compared to another. And some people will have these, you know, overgrowth syndromes of yeast, which are a problem. But it's much, much worse if they have candida overgrowth syndromes and now it's in their circulation. And the way you measure that is you just measure candida, like candida alpacans antibody in a blood test. And if they have candida alpacans in a blood test, that is much, much more serious and significant. So that's another great example of how um, some people with leaky gut have symptoms and some people don't. Some people that have yeast overgrowth or candida syndromes may have very mild symptoms. Some can have severe symptoms. And one of the variables of that is that some of them have breakdown of the tight junctions and then th their candida uh, species get into their systemic circulation. And then those can be measured on a blood test. And that's a whole different scenario. So those patients, you definitely want to get them off sugar and stop all sugar for a while and, and really change their uh, yeast overgrowth pattern. Yeah. Okay. Tanya's asking, what about GI MAP test and zonulin? Is that enough from figuring out root causes like arthritis? So zonulin marker, uh, zonulin, uh, there's a study that we published in the World Journal of Gastroenterology um, two years ago. We looked at serum zonulin and we and and and, uh, and and stool zonulin. The problem with them is they're not as sensitive, they're not as reliable as the zonulin antibody itself, because the high level of fluctuation. If you go to um, if you I don't know if anyone's interested, but if you go to National Library of Medicine pub, pubmed.gov, if you type in my name, you'll see a paper come up with uh, with Dr. Vijdani where we uh, measured uh, zonulin levels and compared to the zonulin antibodies. And zonulin levels go all over the place. So you're going to miss a lot of uh, leaky gut just with a zonulin test. However, if you do see zonulin high, it indicates like leaky gut. I really think the best test is a zonulin antibody. It's much, much more stable, much more reliable than actual stool zonulin. Um, and uh, that would be the way to go. But if you do see a stool zonulin test or whatever lab is doing it, or serum zonulin and is elevated, it means they have leaky gut. But you're going to miss a lot of them because those levels do fluctuate all over the place um, with leaky gut patterns. Okay, people say, in their experience and their practice treating SIBO, many of their clients cannot tolerate bone broth, glutamine supplements, not anecdotal, just their re not her research. It's antidotal, just not their research clinical study. Yeah, and that's real practice. There's going to be lots of pain. Once, once the gut gets inflamed, once scrupper cells get activated, once dendritic cells get super activated, once someone loses their tolerance, anything can trigger a response. And there's nothing but trial and error at that point to deal with it. So yeah, there's absolutely some people who cannot handle bone broth, um, but it's usually more tolerable than glutamine for those people, but some of them still can't handle it. Um, and it is difficult. And this is the, the concept of immune tolerance. Um, I think we need 
uh, talk on that. Yeah. We, we definitely have an, we have an online program that talks about how to improve your immune tolerance. But there are some people that their immune tolerance gets so vicious and so active they can't even take nutraceuticals to, to change it. And then their diet is always inflamed and active. There's a point where it gets so bad, um, there's very little you can really do with that interesting lifestyle, to be honest. But um, that's real life. There are some people who, who will not be able to tolerate anything. Okay, last litany question, because there's a bunch. Um, is oh, I L- pushed a button. You hit a button hard. <laughs> <laughs> is L-glutamine, isn't L-glutamine excitatory? No, L-glutamine is not excitatory. Glutamate is excitatory. Say them again slowly. Glutamine, G-L-U-T-A-M-I-N-E, mm-hmm. is not there you go. excitatory. <laughs> Glutamate, G-L-U-T-M-A-T-E, is excitatory. What's, what do you take? What's the difference? Glutamine does not immediately convert to glutamate. <laughs> if you look at a biochemistry chart, you're going to see glutamine. You're going to see an arrow that says glutamate. And when people don't understand how these things work, they'll just say, oh my God, your glutamine's all converted to glutamate and now you're exotoxic and this way. No, that's not how this works. There's very tight regulation systems and pathways to convert glutamine to glutamate. It doesn't just happen because you take a supplement with glutamine and um, it's not excitatory. Okay, perfect. Um, can root canals cause endotoxin? Well, hold on one second. Oh, sorry. I also want to, I want to point out, now, there are some people who can't tolerate glutamine because of immune reactions and loss of tolerance. That doesn't mean that they reacted because it was toxic. I mean, it was excitatory. Okay, sorry. Okay, that's okay. Um, can root canals cause endotoxemia? Yes. Uh, so, root, well, I don't say root canals can. So, root canals can produce gram-negative bacteria. And if there is a barrier compromised, so there's also the oral barrier, there's the um, uh, nasopharynx barrier, there's a lung barrier, there's a gut barrier. So if there is a, a, a permeability of the oral barrier and there is, um, let's say, some kind of sepsis or some kind of bacterial growth in a root canal, in a bad root canal, um, then yeah, you can have endotoxemia caused by that for sure. Harrison, how are LPS markers measured? Which labs? So lipoplex measures for endotoxemia have to measure in blood. So endotoxemia, now you can measure um, lipopolysaccharides in stool, but doesn't mean that it's in the blood. So in order for it to be endotoxemia, emia means blood, endotoxin, meaning the endotoxin is now in the blood, the only way to measure it is through a blood test. So you can measure lipopolysaccharides, um, in the stool test, but it doesn't mean you have endotoxemia. So you have to have a blood test to be able to see that the endotoxins are actually in the blood. So it would be a routine blood. It would be a routine blood test. From anywhere. Any lab that does it. Yeah. I use Cyrex. Okay. Um, Leah's asking, can fasting help reduce endotoxemia? Yes. So one of the, so fasting can have several effects on this endotoxemia pathway. So one of the effects of fasting is um, you're going to change your gut bacteria. And fasting has a major impact on dysbiosis. So you can change the populations of bad bacteria just by simply fasting. So so people that do intermittent fasting or people that do one-day fasting or alternate-day fasting will have much healthier microbiomes than people who don't. And then also when you get into intermittent fasting and once you get into um, – the point where after 12 hour, 14 hours uh, of intermittent fasting, you're going to turn on different types of gene expressions that help regeneration and growth. So that theoretically will help heal things like leaky gut. 
So intermittent fasting is definitely a great strategy to add in if you suspect you have endotoxemia in combination with the, you know, getting rid of foods you're sensitive to and a healthy diet and you know, whether you're taking alkalinamine or bone broth or whatever a person can tolerate. Okay. Um, Evelyn, will parasites also trigger endotoxemia? Yes. So uh, infections like parasites that can change the environment of the microbiome can promote dysbiosis. And, and, and then the, it, some... Parasitic infections, uh, not all, some parasitic infections can actually cause significant inflammation and break down the tight junctions of the gut. Um, but also what they're finding in the autoimmune disease world is something that is completely mind-blowing. They're finding that parasitic infections actually promote growth of bacteria that produce polysaccharides that are actually anti-inflammatory, and they help calm down inflammation in the gut. And there's some research in autoimmune diseases where they find areas of the world with the highest degrees of parasites have the lowest degrees of um, autoimmunity. And then they've actually then looked at certain par- that these parasites, some parasite species are actually releasing a glycoprotein, and this glycoprotein turns off the expression of autoimmunity on immune cells. They've then done some clinical trials where they've stabilized this glycoprotein and they found in animal studies that it's reversing some expression of autoimmunity. So there may be a drug coming out using glycoproteins, um, which are similar to lethal polysaccharides from bacteria, but from parasites, to actually um, heal autoimmune, autoimmunity. And I think it's going to be a major breakthrough when that happens. Um, water fast or juice fast? Can you explain fasting really quick? So fasting. Okay. What mean? Water fasting. I'm referring to intermittent fasting. There you go. Yeah. Now, if you do a water fast or juice fast, you're still going to get the benefits of your gut microbiome. I'm not sure about a sugar fast, especially with a lot of yeast overgrowth, <laughs> but water fast. Uh, and I think the, the best type of, I think the easiest and one of the most effective forms of fasting is just to do an intermittent fast where you have time-restricted eating, like uh, uh, doing an 18-hour fasting window and six hours of eating. You get lots of health benefits from them, but you're not totally crashing uh, from it as well. But you can definitely do it a full day fast with water uh, or, you know, if you're doing a fast, just make sure you have lots of electrolytes and sodium and salt to keep you going so you don't uh, have those electrolyte imbalance issues. Okay. Which sounds like I need me some parasites. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's some parasites. <laughs> That's really there are people that actually do helmet therapy where they have people ingest parasites to combat autoimmunity. It's a growing area in the autoimmunity world as well. Yeah. Okay. Your thoughts on elevated HDL related to LPS? Elevated HDL related to LPS? Mm-hmm. It's possible. Their, uh, HDL is activated by an enzyme called peroxinase. Peroxinase can be activated by NF-kappa B, uh, potentially through these toll-like receptor pathways. I haven't seen any study published on that directly, but just knowing what mechanism involved, I would say it's not... It's, if you see an HDL, especially above 80, you'd always suspect that there may be some activation of peroxinase from a pro-inflammatory pathway. Um, so be, be aware of that. Like if you see, like the first thing you see is when you see high HDL go, man, you must be exercising your cardio fit. They're like, no, I'm so sick. I can't exercise. My body hurts too much to even move. If you see that with high HDL, maybe it's not that their HDL is good. Maybe it's this inflammatory mechanism and the pathways that are promoted by endotoxemia cause significant systemic inflammation and that could definitely turn on that pathway. So theoretically it's possible. Okay. Someone's asking about, um, Alcohol and leaky gut. Maybe say oh, yeah, alcohol. <laughs> we didn't talk about alcohol, but uh, yes, alcohol. So they actually have studied alcohol in the one, when it causes leaky gut. So here's what they found. They found that people had normal barriers, 
uh, a drink of alcohol is not going to cause like you got, or even two, or even three, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or even they found three three days of three days of binge drinking is when they would see breakdown. And that's with most people, right? So they take a healthy people that don't have leaky gut, intact barriers. If they have binge drink, if they do binge drinking for three days, they're going to get a leaky gut. <laughs> so that's actually been a real study. Now, uh, if you already have some compromised barrier, uh, alcohol can break down some of your tight junctions. And uh, um, alcohol is going to produce aldehydes that, that can have inflammatory reactions and burn up the antioxidants you have in your gut so it can promote some breakdown. And so, I think there's a topic for this in a couple, a couple weeks. Yeah. We'll make, we might make that a topic in a couple weeks. Okay. Sorry. Um, dun, dun, dun. People are... Is drinking coffee difficult to process if you have leaky gut? Um, is drinking coffee difficult to process if you have leaky gut? Um, not necessarily. No. <laughs> and, okay. you know, coffee... Um, coffee for all of the coffee is definitely a concern for people that have high blood pressure, but coffee over the years has been shown to have lots of beneficial protective effects. The flavonoids in coffee beans have been shown to be very neuroprotective. They've been shown to really, uh, help quench inflammation. So, you know, I think like what's become really popular in recent years are people who are doing intermittent fasting and drinking coffee in the morning to, to kind of, uh, calm down their hunger but the combination of coffee, as long as they don't get too excited for it from the caffeine and they can handle coffee and don't have any issues with hypertension, can actually be beneficial for the gut and for damping inflammation throughout the body. Coffee's great. <laughs> okay. Can you do talk on pathogens and biofilms? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. We'll, have, we'll, we'll put on a list. Okay. Yeah, so the next, I think the next few talks you really want to kind of focus on the gut, um, partly because we want to promote our new gut program, the Gut Health Solving the Puzzle program. So we want to make people really aware of that. And uh, once we launch the Gut Health program, we'll be having a live webinar specific for the topics we're teaching and throughout the program. It'll be a four week program. So once again, if, you, if you're interested in learning more about that, go to Dr. K News and sign up. And then for people that have signed up to get it, we'll, we'll have promotion deals and all that to support it. So we're going to be really focusing on the gut for um, the launch of our new course. Okay. Um, Evelyn, can traumatic brain injury cause leaky gut? Yes. Traumatic brain injury is one of the mechanisms that can cause leaky gut. And there's been several studies published in that. They're all animal studies because obviously they can't induce traumatic brain injury in humans. But we do know that when they have looked at the lab markers for intestinal permeability with humans that have had trauma, they do get it. And, and animal studies, they show within three hours that the gut barrier starts to break down. So um, absolutely a traumatic brain injury can can cause leaky gut. And, and uh, that's one of the you know 20 plus mechanisms of why people end up with leaky gut. Yeah. Now if you have traumatic brain injury and have pre-existing dysbiosis before, like your gut wasn't healthy and had all this uh, adverse bacteria growth, and that dysbiotic bacteria already has was producing LPS, but that LPS was confined within the gut. But now the brain injury caused this LPS to get into the bloodstream, so now endotoxemia. Those endotoxins can activate the glial cells, which are the immune cells in the brain, from the injury to even get more inflamed. So you could have some people that get a brain injury and just totally fall apart, and it may not have to do just with the degree of the injury to the brain from the trauma or the force of the trauma, but it could be because of this metabolic sequelae that's taken place because of endotoxemia. 
Okay, Dana's asking, can liver function markers, especially elevated ALP, indicate LPS? No. So when you look at transaminase markers, there's no there's no association with things like AST, SGPT, GGT, whatever, whichever marker you're looking at, with uh, with uh, LP with uh, endotoxemia. So as a person who does routine blood work and does routine lots of testing with uh, uh, leaky gut markers and Cyrex Ray two for endotoxemia, there's there's no overlap. Okay. Jill's asking. It's a lot of topic. But if I have food sensitivities, gluten, dairy, nuts, can they ever get better? Sensitivities. If you have food sensitivities, yeah. can they ever get better? This is actually a good question because this actually we're actually recording a course this week on food sensitivities. Uh, you know, on decoding the puzzle, we explain all these concepts. The answer is yes or no. It may or may not, depending on what's the mechanism of the food sensitivity. Yeah. And is it really food sensitivities or allergy? Is it immunoglobulin? IgA? Is it IgG? Is it IgM? Um, so uh, it is. So I would say this: if it's if it tech, if it's just a food sensitivity, then yes. If you improve your immune tolerance, then you 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 may not be reactive to that food. If it's an IgE food allergy, the answer is no. If it's a food sensitivity to the point where you have um, developed significant amount of memory cells and antibody towards it that keeps being triggered by other cross similar proteins and you probably will never really do, get rid of it and if it's something like celiac disease where it's a genetically hyperactive response to the protein like in celiac disease you have a hyper responsive t-cell you'll never get rid of it so it's going to be an ongoing issue so those are all the different variables we'll probably do it we should probably do a talk on food sensitivity too once we, once we get ready to launch that program yeah um oh next name but they're asking about um Carbonation. Is carbonation bad for the gut? Like food, like, uh, I'm sorry, know. I missed that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, God. Sorry about that. Um, it was from Julie. Sorry, Julie. Oh, sorry, Julie. Um, okay, Julie's in another one. She's, what's the best food allergy test? Have you heard of Zoomers? Zomers. Zoomers, yeah. Zoomers is not the best food allergy test. Why? Uh, in my opinion. <laughs> Because they're, they're, and this is, I think there's a lot of people promoting it, and they're promoting it because of various reasons. Zoomer test uses what's called microarray analysis. Microarray analysis is not very good. The standard way to look at a food sensitivity is ELISA. As a matter of fact, and you can say, I, you quoted me, if they're promoting microarray analysis, they have no understanding of what a gold standard is for food sensitivity. I'm 100% standing by that position. So the gold standard test as ELISA not microarray analysis. So it's, it's very popular because they have a, they, the labs that do microanalysis have been able to jump on board with a lot of popular online forum people to really promote the Zoomer test or their profiles, whatever they're doing. But these tests are using uh, microarray analysis and not ELISA. In the entire field of immunology, that's the test of choice. Now, let me explain something else. Antibody testing is a key part of medical diagnostics. Like you're going to find infections, you're going to find disease from it, you're going to find all types of food, food, whatever, food sensitivities, everything is going to be measured by antibodies. If a new technology came <laughs> that was better than ELISA, it would be a complete change in the practice of medicine, in the practice of healthcare. But guess what? They're not using it. They're still using ELISA. It's the gold standard. They want the most accurate tests. So um, I would say... No, Zoomer is not the best test. As a matter of fact, it's 
you, you don't want to, you'd rather use an ELISA testing. Maybe someday another test will come up, but as of yeah, now. Yeah, as of now. And, 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 and personally, again, I, I have a relationship with Cyrix. I work with them, so I have bias with them. But Cyrix does ELISA gold standard, and they also um, check foods that are cooked versus raw. And they also break down certain portions, portions of foods that are very specific to different types of reactivity. And this is why uh, you, you'd want to really make sure you know what you're testing. What about Great Plains? They say it's better than ELISA. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Again, labs will make their claims. So okay. there, there is an established list in the field of immunology of gold standard tests. I got to tell you, it is a serious area in diagnostic medicine where they can clearly identify what has the highest amounts of specificity and sensitivity. It is, it is not a joke. It's not marketing. It's not fun for them. This is real healthcare, real serious medicine. If a test is established a gold standard, it is a gold standard for a reason, and it's critically analyzed. If any new technology comes that's then endorsed as a new gold standard, then that should be what's used. Labs can make any claims they want. You know, and people, the other trick people use in the industry is patented, the new patented test. If you had a patent test to find antibody protein reactions more effectively, it would be a billion, it would be a multi-billion dollar industry. Why would you limit it just to food sensitivity testing for a small group of people that do nutrition or functional medicine? This is the lab promotion marketing scam. Be aware of it. It's very real. Anyways, I think we're out of time and I'm getting off track and getting upset. But anyways, uh, thank you all for joining us and uh, have a great day. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.